sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Uh, hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Your home for the innuendo, rumor, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And just, Dude, I'm so excited. Go ahead and put your seatbelt on for this one, all right? Uh, we are the story guys at gmail.com. That's how you get involved in the show, like Ryan. Ryan K. from York, Pennsylvania. What's up, bro? Uh, he signed this letter as huge fan, Ryan K., which is pretty Word. cool. Uh, he says, hey, guys, love the show. Was curious if you could dig, dig up some stuff on the incident with the Misfits causing a riot at a show in San Francisco in 1982. They were and possibly still are banned from ever playing in SF again. To this day, there are people in the punk scene who hate the Misfits over that incident. I'd love to hear you guys talk about that band because they are my favorite punk rock band of all time. It's Ryan's favorite. That's so awesome. Like at some point, they were mine. Like I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, who is your favorite punk rock band of all time? Gosh, I don't know. Now I don't know. It's this stuff changes a lot. The misfits were mine for a long time. And then there was black flag. And then I even like Phil and Selmo's like spinoff band that he had, whatever that, yeah, yeah, whatever that was. I mean, even that was well, kind of more of a metal so band. But I, I music. I like old. I like old punk rock, and you probably don't because I'm, you know, developing, you know, a genetic uh, profanity disorder, and you know, I'm getting older. <laughs> no, I love. I love old punk rock. I love new punk rock. Geriatric profanity disorder. I, I, I do like hooks. So the more hooks there are, the better. But I, I, I do like old punk rock. Uh, so I was, I was thinking about this though. Um, that I didn't know the misfits music for a very long time but i was always very aware of their image and their name because these guys incredibly well imaged and merchandised uh, if you were to press me on what i really know about them beyond that uh before getting ready for this show i would just probably point to the fact that like every rock show i've ever been to there's been somebody in a misfits t-shirt at it and i bought those shirts it was like one of the only things that my mom ever threw away she threw away oh stuff God, i bought it really? at, at thrift stores and literally told me that she thought i was going to get crabs why did she um <laughs> and i was like my <laughs> mom knows what crabs are <laughs> why did she throw away the misfits shirts the imagery yeah well there was one i had that was fucking awesome where <laughs> it's it was a different than that regular image that logo yeah, of the skull yeah, yeah, yeah. you see and it was a skull but it ripped its eye out of the socket and was holding it like you know 3d like up close to your you know oh, into that's the dope i haven't seen that looked, one yeah right yeah well and i was thinking that maybe it was just me that had this perception and that they they aren't actually that much better merchandise than any rock band from that era but are, are you familiar with the the New York rock band Dreamers? Do you know this band? No. All capital nah, letters. Our, our difference in uh, age, probably. They, I don't know. They they've been kicking around for most of the past decade, and they've got some really good tunes. There's one you probably know called Drugs that if I played it for you, you would recognize. But last year they released a song, literally called Misfits T-shirt. So it's not just me. Misfits merch is its own thing. Yeah, and now I know that they have to have their Halloween hands on it. I feel like I see it at Target and it's mm-hmm. on like a neon shirt. Mm-hmm. Like it's on think the 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 logo, the skull is on things that are not what are typical Misfits things or the vibe that they had. I'm sure they were screwed over a long time. Like Jimmy Buffett by the way, I just showed that the Misfits have something in common with Jimmy Buffett. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> well, I, I went looking to, to verify this beyond perception, right? And I did find a quote from Jerry Only talking to Dave Everly at Metal Hammer in 2011. This is the quote. Our skull was better known than our name, and that was better known than our music. It's true, right? <laughs> so, so, well, so here's what happened to me. So you, didn't, you weren't familiar with their music, and I was. This is 87, so I was 13. 
and I was in a record store with my mom who would buy me anything I wanted. Um, I think she knew like this was something that would make me happy considering I was a sad little kid. Um, it like she bought me a record by Australia's hard ons that was called <laughs> Dick Cheese once. And I love telling everybody. I was like, my mom bought me a record by a band called the hard ons. And we thought that was fucking hilarious. Anyway, it was really hard for me not to miss the Metallica garage re revisited cassette. Cause oh. it had, it was like seven ninety five. It had the price point on it, like that Tom Petty thing from when he first started and wanted to get out of the label deal. Immediately, I opened up the you know the cassette and I was like, "Oh, these aren't their songs. Like none of these songs yeah. are their songs." Yeah. And then I, I heard the bass player in a couple times, and I was like, "That's not Cliff Burton, and that it's a guy named Jason Newstead from." There you go. Uh, Flotsam and Jetsam, and everyone knows what happened to him because he he quit the the band or whatever. And there's a couple songs on there that are just phenomenal, and you get to hear him. And the but absolutely the best two songs on that cassette. Like I said, they're all covers. Um, there were two songs by the Misfits, and that's my introduction to it. So Last Caress was the first one, and that was incorporated initially in the in the Justice Tour in 88. It would be the encore. So they'd uh, leave and come out and do that before wow. they'd do anything else. Wow. And, and it would fucking kill. Like, people would lose their fucking minds because I got something to say. I killed your baby today is there it is. And you just lose your nuts. And the other song was the song that I kind of liked a little bit more was called green hell. Yeah. So from there, I didn't really find last caress. I found green hell cause it was on this record called earth AD. And then that's when I knew that those fucking guys had a song called death comes ripping. And you know, like all those <laughs> mommy, can I go out and kill tonight? All. And I was like, what the shit? So, <laughs> It was an amazing experience, and I ended up going heavy deep into the catalog. You know, and once they released everything, it's my favorite band for a while. So this is actually a common experience, and I don't know if everyone realizes this, but these guys were reintroduced to the world by Metallica. You were not alone. That same Metal Hammer interview with Jerry Only, he says, quote, Metallica kept us alive and helped us grow at a time when that never should have happened. Yeah. And I, I saw, um, I'm not going to lie, man, I, I like Metallica. And I think they sound better now than they sounded five years ago, 10 years ago. I think they just had a lot of time to practice. And I think Lars is playing to a metronome. Like, and so <laughs> there's no more <laughs> slagging off Lars being a shitty drummer. Like, uh, they're fucking practicing. But so I saw an interview. So I've watched, you know, everything on Metallica on YouTube and, and it's really old. So it's like a masters of puppets era interview. And, you know, I don't think Kirk's got his teeth fixed yet. And he has on a misfit <laughs> shirt and they're asking them these stupid questions that now you would not think that anyone would ask Metallica, right. including like, you know, what's that T-shirt? And is that a band that you like? And Kirk said, it's a band our friend Glenn Danzig is in. Ah. Um, and, you know, um, and so they were done, not really dissimilar to the zombies that we've talked right? about a few it, months ago. It is a little bit like that. Yeah. And they, were, they weren't really doing anything. But the guys in Metallica knew Glenn from leaving uh, the Misfits and starting another band and still being friends with them. And then from there, Jerry only... <laughs> And his brother are back working in their dad's metal shop, not doing anything really glamorous at that time. So it's really interesting to think, see the things that I've read that imply that they decided to use all this imagery, which will eventually be called horror punk or horror rock, as a way to have an edge since they didn't want to do drugs. Yeah. So I was shocked by this. Right. So like definitely in my, you know, my upbringing, I would have just seen misfits and devil looking imagery and assumed the worst. Right. Uh, and yeah. that probably would have equated, especially in the, in the late eighties that would have equated to assuming they were doing drugs. Uh, but I, this is another Jerry quote. When you went into New York, everybody was shooting dope. 
It was a heavy narcotic scene, and I wasn't about it. That's why we came up with the horror thing. We loved horror films, sci-fi, B-movies. We weren't drug-shooting, beatnik, Bowery boys. So Jerry says we, quote, we loved B-movies. But how much of this do you think is Glenn? I think it's a lot Glenn. I think it's almost all Glenn. When I see Jerry only, like photos of him, I'm like, man, that guy loves steroids. But um, so anyway, so <laughs> he's big. There, there is some. Yeah, he's 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 a large man. Um, anyway, so there's some mythology about Glenn and his obsession with all this stuff. He was born in Lodi, New Jersey in 55. Nothing to do with the CCR song. So his dad, very odd. Dad was a, a Marine from World War Two and his mom worked at a freaking record store. So he finds Sabbath at early age and. The mythology is that he starts taking drugs like really early, like 10. Oh, my quits at 15. Yeah. I mean, you know, I actually I actually had a friend growing up who did that, who like really into drinking at like middle school, late elementary school, and then was swearing it off by high school. It's like I've already already been there. So, yeah, get it out of your system, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm well, I haven't yet. So the (laughs) we don't do drugs. So let's do horror thing. Uh, from Jerry only like uh, that's real. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So but he loved comic books, um, clearly loves Elvis and Edgar Allan Poe and monster movies. And all of this coalesces to his desire to be a comic book designer and a photographer. Right. And so he goes to school in New York to do that. Um, but he wants to do dark comic books that are violent and erotic. Right. Well, so that okay. doesn't really fit into what he's doing. So or what he can do at school. Bingo. This sort of all makes sense to me now, right? It helps explain this like who and how and what and why that they give you the misfits. But yeah. how does he how does he take this from comic books and photography into music? Yeah, and so I know a lot about Glenn Danzig. So he, he took <laughs> lessons on the piano and clarinet when he was really younger. And as a teenager, he tries to get into several bands that are kind of Black Sabbath cover bands. And if you think about it, he was born in 1955. Like, what's going on when he becomes 18 or 19? That's like you have Led Zeppelin, Black yeah, Sabbath, yeah. and the, the end of the, the summer of love is, is happening. These Misfits songs that all see the light of day eventually... <laughs> are so freaking awesome. They're perfect records for me where, and some of them like walk among us is there's, do you know, do you have records that are not stinkers? There's, they're the perfect album because you can turn it on and listen to it all the way to the end. Like you yeah. have some oh, yeah. of those, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, how I define so, my favorite records. I don't yeah. put something in there are art. There are artists. I consider my favorite artists who do not have records that are my favorite records because of that. That's just a yeah. personal thing for me, but it's like, if, I need an album. I love every song for it to be and, a favorite and, album. And if you really don't know, Brian, there's a, they have a record called Walk Among Us, and there's no stinkers. I mean, you can 100% say that Mommy, Can I Go Out and Kill Tonight is a stinker of a song. It kind of is, but it's called Mommy, Can I Go Out and Kill Tonight, <laughs> and it kind of makes up for it. Okay, you know? so, it's, so it's 30 minutes. Like It's like 30 minutes or less. Those are my favorite punk records, quick ones. So if you go look at the, just like pull up a list, right? You just said that song title. Look at all the song titles from The Misfits, and you start to understand this idea of a B-movie obsessive starting a punk band. Because literally, it, let me just read some. Teenagers from Mars, Halloween... Yeah. Horror business, Die Die My Darling, Hollywood yeah, which, Babylon. Which the Metallica started doing Die Die My Darling for the that big garage double album. Like the, they covered that too. The aforementioned Green Hell. About half of these that I just named are actual names of old B movies. So wow. I got something for you. There is an amazing archive in the show notes called The Misfits Guide to Film. There's this guy named Scott Bass who wrote it for Perfect Sound Forever, and it is excellent. So it goes film by film and explains how they informed and what they informed inside the Misfits. And this starts, it starts with the name of the band. Yeah, that's the last Marilyn Monroe movie, in case you want to keep it up with her her filmology. Filmography. (laughs) I, I was... I was like a little bit like she was in a horror movie. No. Okay. So it's, it's a movie with a cloud over it is what it is. Uh, let me read this quote from Scott's piece. Monroe's marriage to uh, playwright Arthur Miller, which I forget that was a thing was falling apart when this movie was being made. And despite her heavy drinking, she manages to turn in the most mature acting performance of her career of which this film would be the last, as we've mentioned. 
A decent watch and definitely a favorite of the band, as Glenn thanked the cast in the liner notes of the Cough Cool single, his first release as the Misfits. What right. are you? What are your thoughts on Cough Cool? The, uh, the first thing is, man, I didn't hear that song first. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That song came in when they started releasing the other stuff. But so first, the band has no fucking guitar. And, and when they put the song out, so it's bass and drums. I I and, love this factoid that he yeah. Glenn Danzig was dragging a fucking electric piano around when he started yeah. his horror punk band and changed punk rock music to have the yeah. horror element. He was playing a piano, which is not what I think of as the most horror of all the instrument. Right, right. So I guess it's, I guess you could make an argument that if you had like a pipe organ and you could be like dun 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 on a pipe organ, yeah. that'd be pretty that'd be a pretty like, horror show. But like Cough Cool is incredibly different than Devil's Whorehouse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um once if if you did like in the nineties, if you got your hands on the Misfits box set, there was a fucking coffin. Um and you got that, you had all their output. And so mm-hmm. you had every version yeah. of I Turned Into a Martian. And <laughs> there were some amazing songs and then some that are kind of okay um, still. but So yeah. to continue this breaking down of their influence and iconography, we mentioned out of the gate about the merchandising and the continued presence of their imagery. But I didn't realize what the origin of that skull face thing was. Yeah, I mean, that is, and it's so badass. And like, I had to go watch the. I had to go watch this on YouTube while prepping. <laughs> you are very clever, Professor Richards, but not clever enough to cope with the crimson ghost. I knew that you thought that I was a member of the scientific group with whom you meet, and to increase that suspicion, I had Anderson captured and placed a control collar on him. I see. So you murdered Anderson in order to get possession of the heavy water. You killed Anderson when you broke the control collar. He would have been valuable to me. Now your own life is forfeit. Yeah, and so I wanted to save like a little bit more about this because Brian and I were learning about it. Because before it's like Misfit Skull, but... Yeah, it's There's not a, the Misfit Skull. It's the fucking Crimson Ghost. This is a thing that predates the Misfits by like 30 years. Yeah, it was a 12-part film serial from the 40s that featured the Crimson Ghost as a villain trying to steal a counter-atomic device known as Cyclotrobe X. <laughs> right? That makes sense. Um, which it, which can short out any electrical device. So Think about is- how diabolical <laughs> these people are. All the shorts are available now as one long movie, which is in the show notes. You could see that. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh whatever my god, I dude. So it. the Crimson Ghost looks like... So you're watching it, and like he's not on screen, and then the Crimson Ghost comes on screen, and you're like, holy shit, it's the Misfits t-shirt. Like, it is, in the 40s, looks exactly like, they literally just lifted it, because it was fucking public public domain. domain. It was in the public domain. That's unbelievable, and like, sort of smart and maniacal, and maybe just dumb luck, like I can't decide, but unbelievable that this band, now it's the Misfits skull. No, man, it was the Crimson Ghost. Yeah, which is fun. Wait, one, um, one more thing, though. We have yeah. to settle about the history image factor of the Misfits. We got to talk about the damn hair. Oh, yeah. Devil Lock, <laughs> um, which is a great song, but also the name of the haircut. Um, <laughs> it's like a greasier haircut, but out of a scary movie. <laughs> that's um, a really so good this, way to That's a this, really good way to put it. I mean, I, I feel like such a nerd that I know this shit. The, the <laughs> sides and the back are really kept short, but the front is kept long and combed forward, like kind of like a mohawk, but like sort of more yeah, slick yeah, yeah, yeah. and kind of flatter, and it looks real greasy. And Jerry Only and Glenn Danzig have different stories about how this comes about. Glenn says he was trying to do Eddie Munster, where if you look at early <laughs> like photographs of, of Glenn Danzig, it's like, that's not too far-fetched. Um, but Jerry only says it's based on a hairstyle that's called the Tidal Wave, which was popular with skateboarders in the 70s. These guys were not friends eventually. And look, they disagreed about the freaking haircuts in their band, <laughs> where it came from. Okay, so we've done a good job. You've done a good job of explaining the image stuff. 
Uh, but we haven't really laid out the band itself. So let's just get through that really quickly. So I, again, we did this recently when talking about Jefferson Airplane and Starship and all the member changes there. It's like, let's talk about the core components, right? Because names will come and go and some of those people will be important to the story. But the main two people you've got to know, we've already brought up, and that's Glenn and Jerry. Jerry was a high school athlete working in his dad's machine shop. He gets a base as a Christmas present. Glenn's a little bit older, looking to synthesize all these interests that he had around spook and rock. And they get together, and then they try to recruit drummers and guitar players, and there's a whole bunch of turnover, and, you know, then then it gets started. Yeah, so there's the two members that are consistent until they have a falling out, but there's these amazing stories from the first few few years where they would be on tour, and literally they'd have a guitar player quit, so they'd go back to New Jersey, drop off the guy who's quitting, pick up a new one, and then teach him the guitar parts and then go back on the road. So let me ask you this. How important do you think Glenn's vocals are to the band defining itself? Other than the the other than the the ghost on the shirts, Glenn's Glenn's vocal style is everything okay. to this band. Too. Okay. Well, so here's the other thing that I think is confusing, and clearly you're the expert here. So can you explain this lost debut album, like the Misfits first record, everybody says this is the first record, but it doesn't come out like it doesn't exist in, in people's record collections for years. Yeah. And it, what's like eventually once like all their output comes out and there's multiple variations of songs, it's like, well, this one sounds like the best one. And these sound like they're in mono or they were recorded inside of a closet. Like, it's so weird, like how their output is so different. But so they they did this. They created a label that was called Blank Records. And this is what they put Cough Cool out on, right? Right. Like they just, That's, I also just love that Glenn's like, fuck it, we're going to make a label. Like, they don't even try. They just yeah. make a label. So what they didn't know um, was <laughs> Mercury Records had another thing called you know, blank records. And they just put out a, uh, who was it? Is it Peru? Uh, Ubu? How, is that how you Peri say Ubu. That? Yeah. Peri yeah. Ubu. That's what you're talking about. And, um, and so that was a bad thing. Cause now you have two blank records. So in exchange for permanently owning the name blank records, Mercury <laughs> offered the band 30 hours, um, at CI studios, which you'll see in the liner notes of, of, of the cough, cool thing. With the option of releasing the records, except there's one problem. They make the record and no one will put it out or distribute it. So bits and pieces end up getting put out over the years and comps and, and stuff. And eventually you get to hear like the full album and, and the release that's put all with that box set in a coffin in 96. It's hilarious to me, but also from my limited experience with the record industry, even 30 years after this, it makes total sense that someone's like, oh, just tell those idiots they can use this studio like from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> you know, yeah. like like they're just like, we'll, we'll, we'll make this go away with, with in-kind assets. Like we're not even going to yeah. offer them cash. So they start in New Jersey. They're East Coast. Let's get them to San Francisco because the story we've been asked about is, is what happens in San Fran. Yeah, so from 77 to 82, you have to know that Glenn and Jerry – and this hired help that they have, which really isn't what hired help is these days, uh, just dudes playing guitar with the devil lock haircut, are helping helping them and working hard to gain a reputation with this wacky presentation that they have. Jerry's brother joins them, and literally Jerry and his brother will work for their dad doing metal work during the week, then take the money they make to support the touring on the weekends, real hand-to-mouth, not you know, big, a lot of money production. Stuff. So it, it, one thing I didn't realize, so Doyle is the brother. I yes. didn't realize that Doyle is in high school. Not only is he in high school when he joins, he's in high school through most of their existence. I believe he graduates high school in 82. 
So during yeah. all of this, the other, yes, they're working at dad's metal shop, but I think he's in, in school. Um, but there's a few anecdotes worth mentioning here to explain this ascendance that they achieve. Right. And I just, I, I picked a few out uh, that we can talk about that sort of bridge the gap in between 77 when they get started and 82 when this incident happens. So it's yeah. December of 78. And it's very important that you know that because like two weeks before that, the Jim Jones massacre had happened. Yeah. And now we're about to talk about the drink I call grape. And they took grape Kool-Aid and in the middle of the show, they dumped grape Kool-Aid all over the audience. Yeah. It's so fucked up. Which is really, really messed up. This is also where the Devil Lock haircut starts. This the flyer for this show, supposedly. So the the Devil Lock haircut, the skull, the crimson ghost, these things come along in pieces. They don't they don't come out from the very beginning. You know, now it's like you see a band and I mean it's like I know people who are like, I'm gonna start a band and they sit down and have like a branding meeting with the guys that are this there was none of that shit. This nah, stuff this stuff happens they, along the way, right? No. They didn't have the mer- meeting with the merchandising people and the pu- publicity people. <laughs> so there's there's so much lore around the misfits and some of it has to do with who they encountered along the way right just i'll drop in pieces as we go about oh and so and so was at this show and then so and so opened this show right like the misfits were there in the room for a lot of big things but there is this lore where jerry only says in february of 79 he spent the evening at a party in new york city with sid vicious and the net and then he goes home because that's in new york he goes home to lodi he's working for his dad and making a delivery for the business and he turns on the radio in the van or whatever and hears that sid had died of a drug overdose it's like the janice joplin thing the People at the rainbow hanging out with her, and then she's dead the next day. Yeah. It's like awful. Really, really wild. Go into March of 79. The Misfits play at Max's Kansas City for the last time. Uh, Now, this is where they say the Crimson Ghost starts. So it's this flyer. So again, they're just making flyers, and they're trying new shit, and they're seeing what sticks. Crimson Ghost is on the poster. Uh, After the show, they are asked to never come back or play Max's Kansas City again. Because Bobby Steele, who is playing for them in this rotating cast at this point, is arrested for hitting an audience member in the head with a glass that he threw from the stage. Sounds like a great time. We're establishing patterns of behavior and patterns of shock, right? June of 79. This is my favorite story. Do you know this story? We sort of put this together. They opened for The Damned in New York City. And then they're like backstage shooting the shit with The Damned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we got this tour in the fall, maybe. Like, we're going over to the UK. Like, yeah, you guys you guys should open for us. Like, that is said at some point, or, or someone thinks that is said at some point. The fucking misfits pack up and go to the United Kingdom. And they show up. I read that they showed up at Dave from The Damned's house. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, what's up? And they're like, yeah, we're here for the tour. It starts tomorrow, right? Oh, shit, dude. Like, I wasn't being serious. You guys came all the way to the UK? Oh, shit, man. Yeah, no, we, we actually have an opener for this whole tour. He's He feels bad. So then he tries to make it work. So he's like, we'll just come and we'll just add you guys onto the bill. So they're trying to put them in the middle spot between the opener and the damned, they do the first show by the second show during rehearsals. Glenn and the ba- and the guys in the Misfits get pissed. They don't have enough money to get home. Like only one of them is able to go back to the U.S. And so they just stay in the U.K. <laughs> it's a yeah. it's a wild. These stories yeah. are wild. For Ryan, who asked this question, there are so many great anecdotes like this that set the stage for San Francisco because they show the level of no fucks that is unbelievable for a band trying to get their shit together. And they're just kind of, you know, doing it by their own. Like, they're just doing it. And the level of intensity they run at it is pretty incredible. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Limp Bizkit. The 
Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. So there's this oral history called Give Me Something Better, the profound, progressive, and occasionally pointless history of Bay Area punk. And there's links in the show notes. You can buy the book. You can read an excerpt that's specifically about what happened in San Francisco. But this is core text for unpacking what we need to unpack here. So remember, these guys are (laughs) East Coast guys, and they had been to San Francisco before. But this was really the first time they came as a headliner with the audience having some real expectations of who they are. Yeah. Before we actually get to the night of the show, I think we need to set the scene as to San Francisco in 82, because this becomes a key component to this story. In the 70s, the city's gay male population rose from 30,000 at the beginning of the decade to 100,000 in a city that has 660,000 at the end of that decade. Yeah. I mean, so... A considerable amount of population of LGBTQ people move there because they know that San Francisco is a welcoming place. Parts of the city are like this, right? In the well, history, yeah, not the history of this city and gay community and gay rights goes way, way back. Did you know historians actually trace this characteristic of the city all the way back to being a product of the gold rush in the mid-1800s? Yeah, yeah, because the people going and heading to the coast looking for gold. It was a sausage party. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like it's like the idea of a bunch of dudes that go to the gym and then there's dudes that walk in and they're like, dude, look at those that guy's arms. Yeehaw. Yeah. Gold so, rush. So <laughs> gold rush happens and you've got this huge influx of people in this wide open unrestrained area. There's this researcher and historian named Claire Sears. She published a book in twenty fourteen called Arresting dress, cross-dressing in 19th century San Francisco. Yes, I put a link in the show notes. There's an explanation that she gives. I'm just going to quote. These transient and diverse populations thrust into a relatively anarchic environment were less likely to conform to social conventions. For example, with an unbalanced gender ratio, men often assumed roles conventionally assigned to women in social and domestic settings. Cross-gender dress and same-sex dancing were prevalent at city masquerade balls where some men assumed the traditional role of women going so far to wear female attire. Yeah, that sounds like some politician's worst nightmare. Go ahead. <laughs> but Keep okay. those gold rush people away from my children. Now, it becomes a shadow community a bit. Yeah, but right. ge- geography actually plays a huge part in the creation of this community in another way. Do you know why? Yeah, it's because of blue discharging. Oh my God, I can't believe you know this. And I, I, I know a lot about some things that have like no barrier of entry into making me money. Um, yeah, and because it's a port city, dude. I this is crazy. So explain what that means. In World War One and World War Two, if the Navy found out that you were gay, they would literally pull you over and kick you right off the ship. And so they put you in the nearest port. I mean, that, yeah. they, more or less, that is exactly it. And it, they, it yeah. That is wild to me. But that is actually one of the things that contributes to the growth of this community. So we got the gold rush. We got the two world wars. And, you know, we have to oversimplify for the sake of time. But through the confluence of all these different situations and scenarios, San Francisco becomes a place with an outsized gay population. And this leads to the beat scene in the 50s which you probably know a little bit about. And then in 61 in San Francisco, Jose Soria becomes the first openly gay candidate in the U.S. to run for public office. He runs for a seat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And, and then the Castro neighborhood inside San Francisco will begin to openly identify as a gay neighborhood. And remember, yeah. there was just a few episodes ago that we talked about how countercultural hippie movement stuff with free love and the like, it's all born at the same time and in the same place. And so to give you an idea of how relatively new that this outward and overt positioning is in San Francisco, the incident we're headed towards, we've already told you, happens in 1982. Twin Peaks Tavern in San Francisco will be the first gay bar in the country to remove the blackening from their windows. 
so that people on the outside can actually see in. First place to do it, and that happens in 1972. So it's only been a decade when this incident happens. So in 81, the story starts breaking. There's a disease that's ravaging the gay population, hitting San Francisco particularly hard because the population, and that's AIDS. Again, we won't spend tons of time on this, but if you don't know the background about what the AIDS epidemic in mainstream media and culture looks like in the early 80s and how mainstream media and culture responds to what's happening to folks like the people who live in San Francisco, you need to give yourself a refresher because it will explain a couple of things. A, it'll explain how what we're going to talk about happening happens, like why there is such a violent reaction. There were a thousand people at this show. It's super crowded and it's a big bill. There's like six, seven bands and they are like three songs in to the show. And, and there's a lot of versions of this story. I'm going to try to break them apart to the best of my ability slash research slash knowledge. There's a version of this that I saw in the research that actually blames the riling up of the crowd. I only saw this in one place on, on fear. So fe- yeah. fear is on the bill. Yeah. And I, I've seen different versions of this bill, um, but I think the correct one doesn't in, does include fear. I saw one that had the meat puppets on it. I do not think that's right. But yeah, I don't either. As one of these, as one of these anecdotes around, you know, the bands that sort of cross paths with the Misfits. It's wild to think about the Meat Puppets and the Misfits being on a bill that early. Other versions of this that I read position this a little bit on the crowd, right? So the crowd is being nuts. They're being loud. They're being crazy, and they they do seem to be throwing things sort of across the board, right? And that is, I do want to say a pretty uncomfortable situation for a band on stage for a lot. I mean, for physical safety reasons, for irritation and vanity reasons, right? Like, Hey, I'm here doing this thing and you're throwing stuff at me. You see this in the punk scene. It's part of the anarchy of the whole thing. Right. But it is getting very, very intense. And so, yeah, the shit talking commences and then there's terrible gay slur shit talking with this band that we're discussing from the stage to the audience in San Francisco. So it's essentially told this way in the oral history. Now, the oral history, if you, if you want to go look at it, most of the people, now I will point out the ones that you're going to recognize, a lot of the people are people from that scene and, and journalists. Their, their names aren't going to mean a lot, so I'm going to sort of condense the telling of this. But I'm actually going to read some quotes from retelling this story from people who were there. They, meaning the misfits, just got rained on with beer cans. Somebody hit Danzig in the eye with a can full of beer. They had only played three or four songs, and then the drummer jumped off the stage and attacked Tim Sutliff. Now, Tim Sutliff is not a famous person. Tim Sutliff is a friend of the person talking. And this person says, Tim Sutliff, of all people, was pretty much the smallest kid there. Tim was just covering up his face and backing up, and that that guy Doyle, being uh, Jerry's brother, took his big old guitar and swung it down with both hands like an axe and broke it over Tim's head. And the next quote comes from Jello Biafra, who has, has featured prominently on an episode of this show and is the uh, the man behind the dead Kennedys. And he says, quote, they left him in a pool of blood. It was the worst thing I'd ever seen at a show in my life by far. Jello has been around <laughs> in lots of bands and has... He's seen some played, shit. He's seen some stuff and, you know, been out there. But when he says it's bad, like, you know, something really disastrous happened at that show. So... This, this is a quote from another person in the room. I saw Tim's head split open. His skin split and flapped to his ears. Split oh his God. entire fucking head open. You could hear the gasp of everybody saying, oh my fucking God. And then all hell broke loose. Also, a Misfits song. The narrative shifts this guy, Kelly, who is in the room and is part of that scene. And he then tells it from his perspective. And he's young. I believe he is a teenager, maybe in high school at this point. I totally freaked out and attacked Doyle. I jumped on stage. I landed on top of him, but he was a muscly guy, just like his brother, and just pushed me off. All the security guys grabbed me, and the band disappeared backstage. I was completely hysterical. I had done coke, and I was drinking heavily and smoking pot, so I was out of control. They were holding me against the wall, saying, settle down, settle down, and I was like, Okay, I'm cool. They let me go, and then I ran back on stage and started kicking the drum kit. (laughs) I mean, it just 
blind rage, right? Having seen this happen, having seen a person in, in, in an elevated position, right? A person on stage attacking someone who is not on stage. Uh, and then he goes on to say, there was a big pool of blood. I smeared my hand in it and wiped it on my leather jacket. I don't know why. I was just completely out of my head. I ran back uh, to the back of the club and Tim was there and they were holding towels on his head. This is the kid who got hit with the guitar. The big security guy put his hand out to stop me and I grabbed his fingers and bent them over backwards. Then finally had enough and they shoved me outside onto the sidewalk and it was raining. And I just sat against the wall and started crying. Um, Someone handed me a beer. I chugged it. I got in the back of Sam McBride's car. I don't know who Sam McBride is, but hallelujah for that guy. I held onto that empty bottle all the way back to Berkeley. I had never been so freaked out in my entire life. The band gets asked about this for years. And this is a Glenn... Danzig quote explaining his perspective all night people were getting hit with with bottles and beer cans these kids had singled out Doyle and were hitting him with full beer cans and finally googly jumped in the audience in the middle of a song and started a fight with one of the guys throwing beer cans at him it was a big fight and he started getting his ass kicked so Doyle saw one guy throwing beer at him and hit him in the head with the guitar it went crazy after that. A big riot, basically. The, the Misfits timeline gives a version of, I mentioned that earlier, this website. It gives a version of this that's much closer to the Glenn quote. It says that like various members of the audience were throwing bottles and cans at the bands, and one fan repeatedly was trying to hit Doyle. And so, of course, you know these guys that are down from the audience perspective are on t- Tim as their friend. And they're like, Tim was just this tiny little kid, right? Now, I was a tiny little kid at a lot of punk shows, and tiny little kids at punk shows think they can get away with shit, because I used to be one. <laughs> uh, so I don't doubt that this kid was throwing beer cans. Now, a teenage kid throwing beer cans at someone we now know was also a teenage kid. So I mentioned this, right? Doyle was a teenage kid, probably the same age as this audience member. During that fight that ensued, Doyle attempted to use his guitar to pull the main instigator of the brawl towards the stage. So this this is a wrinkle that I, I'm inserting here because it's totally different than the other versions. So the other versions say, even Glenn Danzig's version sort of says that they like he hits him with a guitar, right? Even if it was an accident. Here he says he's like trying to use it like a hook on the Muppet Show, like like put it out there and pull the guy to you with your guitar, which doesn't seem like a good idea. A riot broke out. The Misfits quickly left the stage. Contrary to various legends surrounding this story, the fan was not killed and did not later file charges. But this doesn't entirely line up with the oral history. Now, one of the guys in the room says they came back out on stage. The singer and the bass player and the drummer, they start trying to play again but people were just throwing bottles. Danzig looked over and said, well, fuck you guys, and left. I think they ended up locking themselves in a room somewhere. And then one person says, we were hanging out in the back alley by the church, waiting for them to come out with their equipment. They got wind that there was a mob out there ready to kill them. And then there's some discussion about what happens to Tim and what, and, you know, I think Tim's mom sued, uh, but she never really actually tried to press charges. The misfits got away with it. They never had to pay for anything, and Tim almost got killed. According to this oral history, this led to a, quote, this led to a ban of the misfits, an informal agreement between bookers. Jello mentions that Maximum Rock and Roll put a rather nasty cartoon about them. In the, have you ever seen this Maximum Rock and Roll cartoon about the misfits incident? Uh, I used to play Maximum Rock and Roll Radio on my college radio station. Yes, I have. <laughs> so... The the hairdos that we spent a lot of time talking about, where it's just hanging down in front of their face, in this card, penis. Yeah. They became penises. Yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly what happened. That riot happens on April tenth, April thirteenth, before the Misfit show at the Whiskey A Go Go in L.A. The band allegedly chased the members of Oh My Gosh Motley Crew. See, <laughs> we got there, as documented by Erie Vaughn in the Misfits box set liner notes down the street. So according to Henry Rollins, Vince Neal walked into the bar while the Misfits were doing a sound check with Jerry Doyle and Danzig, and they began heckling him from the stage. And at this point, Vince Neal supposedly turned and ran out of the door. Also in attendance for the Misfits set was someone else we've talked about on this podcast, and that is Rick fucking James. So that's April 13th. Two days later, you get the McDonald's fight, which is a legendary misfit story and one of my favorites. This story, I don't know. Jerry only has told this story. So, you know, you got to 
if you trust him, that Danzig and Googie, the guy who's playing drums, Arthur, get in an argument at a McDonald's in LA this week because they're running out of money. And Googie wants a second cheeseburger that was not in the budget. <laughs> and this is clearly like one of the things that like just being in a band, I'm sure anybody that's been in any sort of band or any sort of relation, you know, artistic relationship like this can relate to where it's like, there's a whole lot of things that you're mad about and it comes out at, at, at one simple thing and it seems overblown, but it's like a whole bunch of things. I think there are a whole bunch of things wrapped up in this second cheeseburger, right? And <laughs> That's liter- what a great line. <laughs> literally, Googie leaves the band. He leaves the band and they have to not record the thing that they were planning to record because they are now again searching for another musician. And there's this thing that starts happening where Danzig is getting unhappy in the band. And he starts trying to form other bands. He's flying to DC to sit down with half of Minor Threat and start a band with them. So the big culminating thing is a Halloween show in 1983. And they're in Detroit, Michigan. And they have Brian Damage, which I love that. Because Brian Damage, Brain Damage, it's a pun because people will misspell your name when your name is Brian, and they will spell it as Brain. Automatically. Very often. It happens tons. Uh, So Brian Damage gets wasted. So he has just joined the band, and this is like what keeps Glenn from leaving. They're like, listen, we got Brian Damage. He's going to play. So Brian Damage has a drinking problem, apparently, and he gets real fucked up. And he can't make it through the set, and they end up having to get the drummer from Necros... Uh, Todd Swalla, he takes over for like the second half of the show. And in the middle of the show, Danzig just announces that it's the end of the Misfits. Yeah, it's like it's Axel did that when they were opening up for the Stones. I want to I wanna let everybody know this is the last show for Guns N' Roses because too many people are using Mr. Brownstone. That was it. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, fucked wow. up. From him. So the, the story goes that the band drives back from New Jersey after this show. Jerry and Doyle in the front, Danzig and Brian in the back. Jerry and Doyle never speak to Danzig and Brian again. I mean, they have now, but for years after this, they don't. And Jerry and Doyle will go home to New Jersey, and they will work at the machine parts factory. And now, like, we can talk about what happened with Glenn. His career trajectory changed quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, the rest of these guys are sort of stuck as members of the Misfits, they never really get out of that, though I have admitted I leave things out of the notes because I'm worried about getting distracted. And I have left out the fact there is a period where Jerry and his brother Doyle turn to Christ and they start a Christian punk band. Yes, which is <laughs> unreal. Um, I don't think that Glenn did that. No, no eventually, no, eventually no, he, did he did an Elvis covers record like in the last five oh years. God, I mean, dude. the guy... So, you know, we'll, we'll just we'll Amazing. try to wrap this up. Okay, so end of 83, they break up. Danzig forms Sawin, And then in 86, Rick Rubin tussles with the band and turns it into Danzig. In 87, Metallica releases their covers of The Misfits. Now, they will eventually get all the way back together. Jerry only will tour for a long time as the only original member. Then there is reemergence, I guess, in 2016, where they get the entire band back together glenn is back in place and they have played shows since it but up until that point i mean the legend always was that jerry and glenn didn't talk i I mean i think to wrap up you know we we talked up top about how the misfits merchandising and iconography has maybe lasted more than the music to just the average rock person but i don't think you can miss how much influence they had on future musicians like people who wanted to be musicians, they sort of became an artist artist, as we talk about on this show. There's this whole lineage of acts that I don't think see I don't think they manifest at least in the same way without the misfits in the equation. Obvious ancestors, you know, you got Marilyn Manson, right? But then there's like half a third wave emo, like bands like AFI and My Chemical Romance and Aiden. Yeah. We we've talked about current acts like Ghost on this show before. I think Ghost owes a lot to the Misfits for sure. Their songs are catchy. They, uh, most of them are in E standard tuning. And if you listen to that Evil Live record by The Misfits, it just sounds like it's out of tune. Like yeah. that's what they're tuned to. <laughs> um, but when you have, whoa, whoa, 
like that's in lots of their songs. It's just there's this melodic sing singing stuff that they right. do that and, and that and, gets and, turned and, and that eventually becomes what you hear in the offspring and what you hear in no effects less obvious influence in bands like obviously they influence metallica and you know but even bands like gnr oh yeah you know but the one thing that other people don't emulate probably on purpose are some of the lyrics like <laughs> the the some kind of hate song that really could be an everly brothers song except for the lyrics It's like the opposite of Buddy Holly. Yeah. Like how Buddy Holly starts and it goes from F sharp to A. It's like the opposite. But it's like Dark Elvis karaoke over the top of the Ramones. Like half half of their output is just really beautiful 50s pop rock made to sound sort of ugly. Yeah. And what the offspring doesn't do is they don't have songs that have lyrics that go, that's some kind of love for some kind of hate. The maggots in the eyes of love won't copulate. No <laughs> one does it. No one does that. Oh, uh, God bless. Wow. Okay. Hope, there you I go, Ryan. Answered, I hope that answered your question, Jesus, Ryan. dude. Was- here you go. You got you got us talking about the misfits for an hour. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that. <laughs> damn. Uh, wow. So if you have a, a question, if you have something you've always wondered about, if you have a favorite band and you just want to hear us talk about them, I mean, I'm up for that. Send us a note. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And remember, there's a lot of ways you can get involved in the show. Thank you to all the new Patreon members. We are building something fun over there. Patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Five or ten bucks a month will get you bonus episodes and a weekly newsletter where Murdoch and I just talk about the stuff that we are listening to and watching and talking about to each other. Uh, and we got louder than life tickets. So if you want to see some rock bands play rock music at a really loud volume, you can do that at the largest festival in the country. It happens in September in Louisville, uh, which is our hometown. And you can just get in the show notes. Uh, yeah, it's four freaking days. Yeah. Get in the show notes and tell us the five bands you most want to see on that bill. Impress us. Tell us about bands like Gnome. And, uh, and then you could end up here doing that with us because we will be there and it will be yeah. a freaking blast. We can hang out what? and drink and drink $18 beers. That's not our fault. That's just <laughs> how it works at music festivals. Dude, these tickets do not come with beers. Sorry. Uh, listen, uh, what should people keep doing until next time we get around to talk about rock and roll together? Keep sending us letters and keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.